today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Uh, just to give you a uh, quick update on the, the uh, Toronto Police Chief Mark Saunders has just given a press release and confirmed that an 18-year-old uh, woman is dead and a 12-year-old girl is dead as a result of the Danforth shooting uh, last night. The SIU have now taken over a portion of the investigation. They're supposed to hold another press for, uh, conference coming up in a little while. Uh, they are called in because, of course, police involved and uh, the shooter, I believe, is dead, although the, the chief was kind of iffy about that, but that's certainly the reports that we've had. Uh, two dead as well as the shooter, the 18-year-old female, the 10-year-old girl, 16 hit in total, uh, 13 are uh, still in hospital uh, with various wounds, uh, and one police officer, one detective saying uh, could be uh, life-altering. So. Uh, a range of, of injury as a result of this and, and still uh, basically unconfirmed reports of whether this was targeted or, or we've also heard reports that although he seemed to um, uh, shoot at this one woman um, uh, and initially he then apparently zigzagged uh, along the Danforth but whether he was shooting at random those are that's all information that we just uh, simply don't know at this point, and it is uh, a speculation. Let's bring in Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, and is with us now. Phil, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Yeah, my pleasure, Scott. What are your thoughts when you hear of a situation like this? Busy Toronto, downtown street, Danforth, uh, you know, Greek town. I can imagine it was packed last night. What are your thoughts when you when you hear of an event like this? Oh, I think a couple of things, Scott. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not from Toronto, I'm from Ottawa, and I, but we, we hear about the, the shootings that have taken place in the GTA this, this, this year, especially this summer, and a lot of attention paid to the number of shootings, the number of people wounded, number of deaths, the gun problem. You know, you know Mayor Tory has weighed in, Police Chief Saunders has weighed in, so it's obviously a, a very you know, bad time for Toronto right now. Um, I think what really strikes me right now, and and you're right, Mark Saunders didn't say a lot in his press conference. He has to be careful. It's an ongoing investigation. I get that. I think what surprises me is the venue. We're talking Danforth. You know, even I know where that is. You know, we're talking Greektown. This is not uh, Jane and Finch. This is not an area of Toronto that, you know, rightly or wrongly, one associates with with gunfire or with, with gang activity or this kind of thing. It's it's kind of like an average neighborhood. And as you said, it was. I, I got a, I'm actually in Toronto right now at a conference. It probably was packed last night. It was a nice nice summer evening. I know there's lots of patios, lots of restaurants on the dance floor, mm. people out enjoying their Sunday evening. So I, I think what maybe really gets people is, oh, my God, it's now, now it's the Danforth. Yeah. I mean, what's next? Yeah. Right? We had the, the emergency on Front Street a couple of weeks ago, increased presence of, you know, possible, apparently possible vehicular attacks. So, like, where do we go from here? I think it's what, what people scare people right now. What can you do as a city? How, you know, Mar- uh, Mark Saunders, the chief of police, was basically saying, you know, didn't mean to downplay it in any way, but we're a big city. This happens. I hate to say it, Scott, but I think he's right. I think panic is not is not helpful. You know, look, at my, my background's in Intel, right? I'm, I used to work for CSIS. And, and the only way you're going to stop these things in, in a realistic way is that you have to have intelligence beforehand, whether it's CSIS intelligence or trauma police intelligence or RCMP intelligence or whatever, you have to have some kind of, you know, hint this is going to happen. Or you get lucky, right? Some average citizen notices something and, and, and calls it in. So they're really, really hard to stop. It's not, they're not impossible, but I don't want to say it can happen anywhere, but it can. But I think the real takeaway here is that even though it did happen, it's tragic, this doesn't happen every day, even in Toronto. 
And we have to, we have to realize that that you know as, as tragic as this is, Toronto is still a pretty safe city when you compare it to the Chicago's and mm. the LA's and, and the New York's and the and the Capitals and the Mogadishus of this world. You talked about gathering intelligence. How, how do we do that, Phil? Um, you know, we were having this discussion earlier in the newsroom. You know, ten or twenty years ago, it was all about getting the cops out of the cars and back on the beat, back into the communities. Now, you know, we seem to be talking about carding an awful lot and pulling back on that. How do you balance community police, policing and, and finding that intelligence and carding? I mean, you know, where's the, where's the medium here? Where's the happy medium? I don't know, Scott. And, and the thing is, we know that all this stuff is pendular, right? So for a long time we said, oh, yeah, that's card, card, card to catch the gang guys before they act. Then it was, oh, no, no, we can't card because it's discriminatory. It's racial-based or it's something ethnic-based. We can't do it. So we always seem to swing from one side to the other, one extreme to the other. And, and we don't seem to find that happy medium. I don't know where the happy medium is. I mean, if I did, I'd probably be a millionaire, right, or a billionaire to figure the solution out. But we've got to figure out a way for, to allow our law enforcement agencies and our intelligence services to do the jobs we want them to do, to collect the information they need to collect to understand what's happening out there, and to be, if not predictive, proactive in nature, so they can disrupt things before they happen, rather than you and me sitting here, you know, 12 hours after what happened last night, talking about dead people. We were talking about, oh, isn't that great how Toronto police stopped this thing from happening? So it's a fine balance. We're a liberal, secular, democratic society, as we should be, and we all want it to be. But we've got to find a way to allow those services to do their jobs, and I don't have an answer to that. I wish I did. So, uh, as you said, after the fact, lots of, of Monday morning quarterbacks. Is this a gun and violence issue? Is this a guns and border issue? Or, uh, and by border, I mean guns coming across the border. Is it, is it a gun issue or is it an intelligence issue? It's all of the above. I mean, we don't know yet, right, what kind of gun was used. It seemed like, I mean, I'm not a gun guy. It seemed like a pistol to me as opposed to an automatic weapon based yeah. on what I saw in the video. So, I mean, how easy is that to acquire in Toronto? I have no idea. Apparently, it's quite easy based on what's happened this year in the city alone. Uh, was it obtained from the state? If that's the case, then it becomes a border issue. And it becomes an issue with dealing with the Americans. But they have a very different view of gun sales of the border than we do here in Canada. Is it an intelligence issue? It's always an intelligence issue. It's always about getting information from your sources and corroborating it as quickly as possible so you can act on it. Is it a societal issue? Absolutely. I mean, you know... We don't know anything about the gunman, except for an age, I believe. And I think you're right. I've heard he's either dead or not dead. Mark Saunders was very, very... He was vague about that because they said yeah. at one point that there's two dead, including the shooter, and then they just said that he'd been shot. That's why the SIU were called in. Uh, and then the question prior to that was, well, did he kill himself or did police shoot him? And now we're questioning whether he's dead or not. Well, I kind of hope he's alive because, uh, you know, you can question the yeah. live guy a lot better than you can question a dead guy. And so if he is alive, and whether or not he cooperates, I mean, this is all very speculative, right? Because he could be, he could very well be dead for all, all you and I, no, Scott. But if he is alive... And well, you know what? That's, that's what they initially said, and he didn't say anything different, so we have to assume he is. Okay, so if he's dead, then we have to go, they'll have to go to, okay, can they get an emergency warrant against his social media, his cell phone, all that kind of stuff? Did, did he post anything online? Was he in contact with anybody online? Was he put up to this by somebody? Was he cooperating with somebody? You know, one thing I know I learned in my days at CSIS that when it comes to terrorism, I'm not calling this terrorism. Be very careful with that. All this stuff is is leaked in advance. Mm-hmm. I mean, leaked in the sense that you, you talk about your intentions, you talk about your radicalization, you talk about what you want to do, and it's a matter of, of being in the right place at the right time to to collect that information and act upon it. So that's what they're doing now. They're you know they're talking to friends, family, acquaintances, all the kind of stuff to figure out you know what led up to what happened at 10 p.m. last night. Who is this guy? Where is he from? What's his motive? Why did he do this? And did somebody know in advance? And if they did know. 
Did they know enough not, not to call, to call? You know, the old thing about see something, say something. Mm. You say it all the time, but you know it, it's really important. We also kind of get the impression that the police were there as this was unfolding. Like, perhaps there were police in the neighborhood as this was unfolding. Well, yeah, I, I don't. I didn't know that. Uh, that's interesting news. So, was it part of just a, a normal patrol on the Danforth? Again, I'm not from Toronto. I don't know the Danforth area that well. If they were there in some kind of numbers, was it in response to some kind of intelligence? Yeah. Did, did mm. they get some kind of a tip off? This might happen, kind of thing. I don't know. I mean, we, right now, you and I know probably as much as we can, Scott, yeah. based on what, what's open and available. But it'd be interesting to find out in the, in the hours and days to come uh, more about the shooter, more about his motive more about what police knew and, uh, and and going forward. But at the end of the day, we've got two people dead and yet another tragedy in Toronto in the summer of 2018. Uh, what can the average citizen do? What message do you have for them? Uh, what do we do? I mean, again, I can picture myself on the Danforth or any other in any other city in Canada on a patio, you know, having a drink, having something to eat, and then this unfolds. How does the average citizen prepare for this? Can you? What can you do? This may sound like a simplistic answer, Scott, in the, you know, only 12 hours after this loss of life. But my, my suggestion to Torontonians is go on to the Danforth tonight. Go down to Front Street. Yeah. Go down. I'm here, I'm here in Queen's Key. I'm giving a talk at a conference on Queen's Key. Come down there. Last night I got, I got in, there's, you know, a gazillion people in the streets. The Jays game had just ended. People are out having beers, having a good time. Do that. Because if we start deciding where to go, what to do, and when to do it based on uh, fear, uh, a, a real fear, but slightly irrational fear, slightly exaggerated fear that this is your night, you're going to die in a, in, in a hail of bullets, then you won't leave your basement. Hmm. And I don't think we want, we want to do that as Canadians. Good point. Phil Gursky has been with us, President and CEO Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, talking about the shooting on the Danforth last night. Phil, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Take care. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Is Donald Trump a communist sympathizer? You know, think about this. Uh, People of Donald Trump's generation, 70 plus, you remember post-World War II, they were blacklisting people who had commun- who were communist sympathizers through the 50s and 60s. I mean, if people were saying what Trump is saying today, many years ago after the Second World War, they'd have to deal with uh, all kinds of consequences. Now it seems to be appropriate to poop on your allies and cuddle your, your enemies. So, and I've asked constantly, what is in this relationship for for America? What does America get with Donald Trump cozying up to his enemies more than his allies? I mean, it's not like Russia's an economic powerhouse. It's not like they're a real threat. So what's in this for America? Doesn't seem to be anything. What's in it for Trump? Lots of speculation about that. They've got something on him. His business dealings through there. We still haven't seen his tax return. All sorts of speculation about money laundering through Russia. But we can't prove any of that. That's what the Mueller investigation is delving into, I guess. But none of that can be proven at this point. So what's in it for America? We don't know what's in it for Trump. Maybe he's just a communist sympathizer. And I know maybe lots will say, well, Russia's not a real true communist country anymore. Yeah, you tell, Boris, you tell Vladimir Putin that. The old KGB-er. 
So, again, what's the purpose of all of this? What's in this for America? Now, all of a sudden, he set his sights on Iran. And it's, it's Kim Jong-un all over again, except this time with Iran. It's fire and fury. Here's what U.S. Secretary of State uh, Mike Pompeo had to say. They seem more concerned with riches than religion. These hypocritical holy men have devised all kinds of crooked schemes to become some of the wealthiest men on earth while their people suffer. All right, let's bring in Simon Palomar, Research Assistant Center for International Governance Innovation. He is with us now. Simon, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No problem, Scott. You know, we chatted what's next. I guess this is what's next. Why has Donald Trump's attention now, you know, moved to, to Iran? I mean, is he, he seems to be using the same sort of language he was using with Kim Jong-un a while back. Is this just another distraction away from Russia? You know, your, your guess is probably as good as mine or as good as anybody's as to how the, the president decides to you know, pick his targets for his rhetoric and the timing, et cetera. But, you know, this this rather unfortunate tweet last night, I mean, it does seem in many ways, you know, like a, a an effort to, you know, shift the, uh, shift the discussion, shift the media cycle. Um, it puts him on stronger footing because even if the president's views on Iran are fairly extreme, he's uh, closer to most Republicans, Democrats, and viewing Iran as a problem that, you know, his views on Russia where... He really does stand apart from the rest of the American government. And uh, with sanctions uh, getting ready to be reimposed on Iran in about two weeks, it's probably a good time for him to you know, point to one of his, uh, let's say, relative successes, relative foreign policy successes, where you know, he was able to uh, more or less single-handedly dismantle or at least cripple uh, the Iranian nuclear deal without too much opposition. So... It, it does feel mostly like, uh, you know, an effort to to pump up his supporters and to, to take attention away from his less than successful Helsinki summit. Uh, let, and again, getting back to the Helsinki summit, you know, many prior to that characterized Donald Trump as being a bully, a bull in a china shop. He'd go in, he'd put his adversaries back on their heels, uh, art of the deal, all of this stuff. And then, you know, even leaves the, the queen standing, you know, 10, 12 minutes before he shows up late for his meeting with her. Then, of course, uh, ends up waiting an hour for Putin and looks weak and 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 the UK call him a a Putin poodle and such. Is this his way of looking tough again to the American people by seeing by saying no? Look, this guy's an enemy, and look, I hate him. I don't love our enemies. Yeah, I certainly think that's part of it. I mean, that's pointed out. Um, Vladimir Putin, that that playbook he used, keeping Trump waiting, uh, coming out uh, from the meeting room looking very confident, almost almost strutting kind of uh, lording over the microphone, that's that's classic Putin. He's done that to many other world leaders, not just Trump. So Trump is just, uh, I think, an, a, a, another uh, that's another win for Vladimir Putin. That's how he likes to negotiate and talk. So I think part of this is, yeah, lots of Democrats don't like the government in Iran. Lots of Republicans don't like the government in Iran. They may not all agree about what the right policy is, but they can all agree that, you know. Iran so it's a common happen. it's a common yeah. fight for him. Exactly. So this is a safe one for the president, even if his tweet last night was intemperate, silly, not not a credible threat. 
it's still much more solid footing that he can say, look, this is a serious issue that my predecessor bungled, and I'm going to deal with it correctly. Uh, you talked about the tweet. Here it is, and, and it's all in capital letters. And my goodness, you know, even thinking about the president of the United States tweeting something all in capitals like this and threatening another world leader. It just seems so wrong on so many different fronts. But the tweet is in caps, never ever threaten the United States again or you will suffer consequences the likes of which few throughout history have ever suffered before. We are no longer a country that will stand for your demented words of violence and death. Be cautious. So does that mean he'll start a war over rhetoric or being called names or demented words or violence? Like, what the hell does that say? Well, it's, it's a great question because the, the speech from Iranian President Hassan Rouhani, which apparently set this response off, it was a fairly benign piece. It was a fairly benign speech, I should say. You know, Rouhani gave some words about, you know, if the United States wants war, it will be a you know, a terrible war, so you shouldn't declare war on us. But if you want peace with us, it'll be a, you know, a wonderful peace. We'll be able to trade, we'll become wealthy, almost a, a, a Trump-like sort of message. So it's a completely, you know, incredible and incredible in the sense that it's not believable statement from the president. We've seen this before, you know, last summer, fire and fury, and that comes comment. That wasn't in reference to North Korea testing another ballistic missile. It was in reference to them threatening to test another ballistic missile. And obviously there was no follow-through. There was no, you know, retaliation for uh, the North Korean government using, you know, improper language. So, you know, the reaction, you know, around the world, if you'll read the English language around you, press, et cetera, read uh, reactions in other capitals, everybody just kind of shrugging it. You know, this is unfortunately the way this president operates. It doesn't make him very credible or believable, but it's just kind of, you know, par for the course. Uh, he, again, as you mentioned, we saw the same sort of, uh, of diatribe in and around uh, North Korea and, and Kim Jong-un. Then, of course, he had the big summit. He signed the big uh, book there and, and the world was safe again. Is that what he thinks will happen here? How will this one go? <laughs> I think that'll be a much harder uh pattern to replicate with Iran. You know, whereas, you know, North Korea really is a, a one-party state dominated by a, a very small number of politicians. Um, Iran's a very different society. You know, it, it's not what you would call, you and I would call a democracy by Western standards, but it, it has political competition. It has competing parties, competing, competing uh, individuals. And Anti-American sentiment, you know, in some sectors of the, the country does run deep. And, you know, they would say for very good reasons, such as, you know, the the uh, the coup in the 1950s that the Americans supported, et cetera, et cetera. So it would be very hard for any Iranian politician to make that kind of that kind of move. It would be very hard for the Iranian president, Rouhani, to go meet Donald Trump because he would be absolutely eviscerated by uh, conservatives back home, whereas Kim Jong-un. Nobody can defy Kim Jong-un. Or that's what we believe, at least right now, in North Korea. So it'd be very hard for him to play this, uh, you know, carrot-and-stick game with Iran. It's a much different society, a much wealthier, more important country, a much harder challenge. And uh, if that's what he's going for, it's going to be a very tough, uh, tough builder to pay.
Why is all of this happening now? Um, why why today? Uh, is it that Donald Trump has a few distractions kind of going on on the back burners of the stove, and whenever he needs one, he pulls one up to the front? Why is this happening now? Yeah, the timing, it's a really good question. I can't say tell you why it was, you know, last night um, rather than this morning. But, you know, if we look at a few things, there are there's some clues here. I mean, one, Helsinki did go poorly. I mean, this is one of the rare instances where you really saw the president trying to dial back his words and, and, and rewrite history about what he said. I mean, this was quite, um, uh, he really did uh, step back from his comments. I think that went poorly. Um, two, we do have Iran sanctions. At least half of them are coming back online in early um, August, and that's part of the uh, expiration of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. And there has been an effort by the Americans to put pressure on their allies and adversaries to stop trading with Iran, stop conducting banking, uh, stop doing banking deals with Iranian entities, et cetera, et cetera. And um, they need to convince you know, countries like India, China, et cetera, that they're serious and they'll, they'll, they'll impose sanctions on them if they continue to trade with Iran. There's also John Bolton in the White House now. John Bolton is infamously hostile to Iran. He likes to go before um, um, Iranian anti-government groups, like groups in exile, and talk about, you know, essentially almost talk about overthrowing the regime there. And we do have midterms coming up in a, in a few months, and it's about time that people start campaigning for those and, you know, trotting out some enemies, trotting out some foreign policy successes, always useful when he's stumping for uh, Republicans. So I think there's a number of things that are all pointing us in this direction right now. Okay, so getting back to uh, the Helsinki summit, uh, Donald Trump, uh, again, has a meeting uh, with Vladimir Putin only a translator, nobody to verify anything that has been said. Then he comes out, holds a press conference where he appears very supportive to Russia, tells us very little about what was actually said in that meeting. In fact, over time, we're hearing more from Russian media about what happened in that meeting than we are from Trump, although he complains to the media that no one's talking about it. And of course, no one was there. How, how, how can they? Uh, that being said, when he comes back to the uh, fire and fury back home and people are ticked at him for, for what he said, he then doubles down and says, we're going to have another meeting. Um, will that happen? And will it be secret too? Is this all to just distract from the fact he wanted a second meeting? And how is that going over? How does that go over with his base? Well, his supporters, you know, you may have seen some of the you know, interesting reporting from the New York Times or CBC or other places. His supporters seem to be pretty capable of, you know, finding a, a silver lining in every, everything the president does, you know, so... You know, perhaps he's playing uh, Russia for the long game, being nice to them now, closing up to them now, preparation for a, you know, a, a big comprehensive deal on Ukraine or Syria or something. I mean, it's very, you know, people do that. We we all do that. Sometimes we have our own little pet issues where we'll rationalize it away. But the bigger issue of you know inviting Vladimir Putin to Washington. I mean, this is a man who U.S. intelligence firmly believes personally ordered you know, a uh, propaganda attack on the 2016 election. I mean, striking at the heart of, you know, as corny as it sounds, American democracy in 2016. To invite this man to 
uh, Washington for a one-on-one. I mean, there almost certainly will be a closed-door one-on-one. That's kind of a presidential prerogative to have those private conversations with foreign leaders to invite him there. I mean, it took the director of national intelligence, Dan Coates, took him completely off guard. He learned about it when he was being interviewed about it on TV. And this is certainly something, you know, for all the for all the media excitement that the Singapore summit, you know, made, because it's Kim Jong-un, he's a bit of a, an odd fellow from a, you know, from the from an isolated country, we don't know much about him. That was very exciting. The idea of, of Vladimir Putin, who's pretty much identified the United States as geopolitical enemy number one for Russia and a, and a country that needs to be undermined, stymied, and blocked at every opportunity, for him to be coming to Washington, uh, there's been very little attention and very little uh, 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 excitement for what could potentially be a far more consequential uh, meeting. So, uh, obviously, I- I've asked this question a bazillion times, like, what's sure. in this for America? What are Americans getting out of this? Uh, many have speculated of what's in it for Trump, and there's investigations, I guess, going on trying to find that. Nothing at this point. Why has he not been branded a communist sympathizer? Considering people from Trump's era, Trump's generation, post-World War II, anyone chatting the way he did at that point would have been blacklisted. How does he not get late? And I know that Russia is not a, a true communist country in the sense of the word uh, now, but let's be honest about Vladimir Putin. It doesn't get any more communist than him, his old KJB, KGB roots and such. How is he not getting branded a communist sympathizer? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I mean, the, the, the point you make about, you know, the president's generation, I mean, it's it, it, it's a good point that we don't even have to go back to the McCarthy hearings, you know, which was a you know very dark time. Exactly. In the American Cold War. We can just go to the 1980s and Ronald Reagan, who called the USSR the evil empire. And even if the Communist Party is a, a spent force in Russia now, uh, Vladimir Putin uh, runs the country using many of the methods and tactics that, that the, the former Communist Party of the USSR did. So whether it's, you know, a case of historical amnesia. I mean, for perhaps for some of Trump's younger supporters, you know, who grew, who were born in the 1980s, they don't remember the Cold War, and that's all irrelevant. Um, they're, they're, it could be partially that, but, you know, like I point out, with with the way that some uh, Trump supporters, you know, who were willing to talk to media after the, the Helsinki uh, summit, you know, the, the, they find some way to always read the best intentions in the president's behavior. And I don't know if you're going to win an argument when somebody's really dedicated. You know, we see this with politicians all the time. People get yeah. dedicated. Um, either they love a politician or they hate a politician. You know, eventually the facts kind of stop mattering. And you're not going to, it's like, it's like about arguing about religion. What about, I, I, I see your point entirely, Simon, but when you start getting this sort of thing, for example, even the whole Russian spy story in regard mm-hmm. to infiltrating the National Rifle Association, I mean, you can't write this stuff. No, no, it's remarkable. And I mean, you know, some of the, you know, some of the, if you want to kind of read the proverbial tea leaves and you look at uh, the, uh, what's happening with Paul Manafort. Now we see um, Robert Mueller is, you know, compelling witnesses to testify, you know, under certain protections that they won't be in, they won't, they won't indemnify themselves. Um, When we see these, you know, growing cases against, you know, maybe, you know, smaller, uh, espionage uh, 
the schemes. You know, like this this lady who is alleged to have infiltrated the NRA and, and cozied up to Republican uh, uh, political operatives and maybe you know, worked her way in there. You know, it starts to look like you know, okay, unfortunately, there is a bit of smoke here, which then just leads to you know the some of the more outlandish uh, conspiracies, like what, why this might be, what does Russia have on the president? But it's remarkable, and it's a good reminder that, you know, even if, you know, the Cold War is over, the things that we've seen in the last decade, you know, the use of chemical weapons, that's something we thought was long gone, uh, people being poisoned uh, by, you know, allegedly by Russian spies or former spies showing up, you know, sick and uh, mm. or dead. This is stuff that, you know, it has continued throughout the years, and now it's just it's a bit more in the public eye. It's coming to a bit of a head, and it's a good reminder that, you know, we don't have the, the fear and the, the rhetoric of 30 or 40 years ago, but a lot of the same issues, hmm. you know, and a lot of the same tactics are still in play. All right, last question, Simon. When, where is this uh, Iranian uh, rhetoric going? Where, how does this, where does we, where do we go from here? I wouldn't think very far. The Iranians really seem not too flustered by this. I mean, we have to remember, this is a uh, government, uh, many of the leading figures in the Iranian military and government right now, they came of age during the Iran-Iraq war when they got invaded and they almost had the whole world turning a blind eye while um, Iraq, uh, you know, tried to uh, annex part of Western Iran. They were young men, they were teenagers when they went to the front. They came back, they survived, they built their country to what it is today. They're fighting a war in Syria right now. They're uh, fighting a cold war against Saudi Arabia. They've been fighting a kind of a cold war against the United States for almost 40 years now. Uh, some some bellicose rhetoric from the president. I mean, they're, they don't seem to be taking it too seriously. And, and I wouldn't expect this to be the sort of thing that provokes the Iranian government into doing something rash. Simon Palomar has been with us. Simon, as uh, always, thanks for the time. Research Assistant, Center for International Governance Innovation. Thank you, Simon. My pleasure as always. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. With interprovincial booze trade going on uh, and discussions by premiers, uh, is this going to change anything? Of course, you might remember New Brunswick last week, the premiers all getting together. Here we are chatting and debating NAFTA, and we're seeing Canadian leaders of all political stripes come together in order to try to sell this and sell Canada and, and, and stick up to Donald Trump. But are we being a little hypocritical here, considering we're preaching to Donald Trump about his protectionist measures, yet we're doing the exact same thing between provinces. Beer, wine, ask your local brewer or winery about this. The guy from New Brunswick who tried to buy cases of beer and liquor in Quebec and then take it back. Where's the free trade? Where's NAFTA? Where's the attitude? that tries to sell this. Why doesn't it exist provincially? Uh, it is in the public eye now more. How does that change things? Let's bring in Alexandra Moreau, public policy analyst, uh, analyst rather at Montreal Economic Institute and is with us now. Alexandra, thanks so much for taking the time. We appreciate this. Hey, it's my pleasure. So is it a little bit ironic here that here we are, uh, politicians, leaders of every stripe coming together to 
you know, to, to blast Donald Trump about his protectionist measures when we do the same thing interprovincially all the time. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right to point this irony. Um, I mean, between provinces, we don't necessarily have tariffs like we, uh, like the United States is trying to impose on our economy, but we have barriers uh, uh, that are actually regulations. So it, may, it makes it harder to uh, commerce with other provinces and makes everything more expensive. And sometimes it makes it easier to have commerce with the United States than with our neighbor in another province. So it's completely, completely ridiculous. It's really expensive. Um, because ultimately, consumers in Canada are paying way more for their goods and services than they should be in a free economy. Uh, has this kind of backfired for the premiers in the sense, or the provinces that, you know, they have become united to speak up and, 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 and try to sell NAFTA, but of course in doing so are drawing attention to their, their own interprovincial uh, barriers because of all the chatter with NAFTA? Is this bringing this more to the public eye, do you think? Yeah, I think if Donald Trump have achieved anything good for Canada is to put some pressure on us and to force us to say, okay, if we have uh, tariffs on the United States, uh, we need to have more commerce within Canada. So uh, it kind of put a pressure on the, our premiers uh, to abolish the re- remaining barriers that we have, and not only in the liquor uh, sector, but uh, in every sector of the economy, um, and I think it's really important uh, uh, that every premiers come together. And uh, the statement that they they've uh, released uh, in New Brunswick is really important, and I think it's a good step forward. Um, but eventually, will it be uh, concrete um, re- reform in terms of regulations? Will they only uh, speak loud but do nothing? Uh, I think we'll have to wait and see. But uh, I think it's a good start from here. Why are these barriers there? What's, what's at stake here? Why not drop these? Uh, it's really complicated. Uh, in the liquor sector, I mean, in the area of prohibition, provinces wanted to control everything in the province, um, and they started to have their own monopolies. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, here in Quebec, we have uh, SIQ, which uh, actually controls everything from retail to imports and warehouse. Um, so they want to have full control of the liquor uh, industry, and they also want to impose high taxes. So if, if a province, for instance, Alberta, wants to charge high taxes on their uh, on their liquor, um, and if they don't, they don't have barriers from province to province, maybe uh, just Albertans will just cross the border and the taxes uh, won't generate the revenue they are expected. So this is why they impose restrictions in the sector of alcohol. So this is... Uh, those measures are from a different era, and we need to have a free uh, economy inside Canada. And I think it's really important, and maybe we will finally see the benefit uh, of a free trade economy if the premiers go forward. Will this, in the end, unify taxing in all provinces? Like, for example, you just said, uh, we'll use the example of the guy from New Brunswick going into Quebec to, mm-hmm. to, to purchase beer. Obviously, what's happening is he's getting it cheaper through less taxes in Quebec and bringing it into New Brunswick there. Therefore, New Brunswick loses out on that tax structure. If we come up with something common across the province, won't that all even out? Yeah, that's a really interesting thought. Um, for instance, what they've agreed on is only the limit of liquor that you can cross a province with. Um, and actually, uh, as we are currently speaking, the only provinces that do not have those limits is Alberta and Manitoba. Uh, so the remaining uh, eight jurisdictions are the only ones who impose limits. 
um, but they only agreed to uh, essentially double the, the actual limits and kind of uniform uh, limits because, uh, as as for now, right, it varies a lot from province to province, uh, and it's really complicated. Um, but that's a step forward. But still, we have some monopolies in each provinces, and I don't think that we they will also harmonize the taxes on liquor uh, because uh, politically it can be... Uh, more complicated to do and also in terms of revenue provinces like to generate revenues so maybe they won't uh, reduce the taxes but uh, anyway it's a it's a good step forward that being said is it really a step forward and is instead is it more of a band-aid in the sense that as you mentioned they really haven't haven't changed anything here they've just doubled the amount that you're allowed to take back from one from one province to another is this an opportunity lost here should they have done more by actually examining the actual tariffs themselves as opposed to just saying well you know if we just allow them more they'll everybody will go away and nobody will talk about this anymore yeah, it's really hard to say, but I mean, they have good intentions, and some premiers are way louder uh, and more uh, open in terms of uh, having a real trade uh, between provinces. For instance, uh, Brian Pallister uh, was really criticizing every protectionist measures, and not only the ones in the alcohol sector, and he said we should abolish everything, every barriers. And I think every other premier should follow his steps and do the same. Um, and we talk a lot about alcohol because of the Como case in New Brunswick, but there is other, other sector, for instance. Uh, if you look at the trucking industry, there is very an array of regulations from province to province, and sometimes you, it makes it more complicated to cross the, the border, um, for instance, between Ontario and Quebec, and you know, it's, it's easier to go from the United mm. States and then uh, go back in Ontario. So they also wanted to tear down those barriers, um, and for also in terms of trade, uh, what, what, it, what you need to have to be recognized as a nurse, for instance, in New Brunswick or uh, uh, in Alberta, it's not the same regulation, so we have less mobility in terms of uh, of labor. So those measures are also uh, adding costs to the, the those barriers, and they seem to be willing to go further and to fully liberalize those measures. But again, some premiers are more uh, openly discussing those issues. Um, but every time when you have protectionist measures, you have smaller, maybe sometimes unions or uh, specific industries that want those measures, those barriers to stay in place because they benefit uh, from them at the expense of Canadian consumers. So politically, it's kind of a battle. So you have to balance between your uh, interests and your electoralist uh, interests as well. So it's a really complicated issue. But I think the current situation where we are dealing with uh, protectionist government uh, south of the border gives us um, Mm. a good opportunity, uh, actually, to see the benefits of free trade. And like you said uh, at first, we cannot criticize protectionist measures from the U.S. and then imposing those barriers uh, to our neighbors here in Canada. Is this too complicated? Is there any real appetite to tackle this? Yeah, I think there is, um, and we have actually the uh, Justin Trudeau who said that provinces should go forward uh, in tearing down those uh, barriers. Uh, we had a Senate report that was released uh, last year who also said that we should abolish those uh, barriers and that they were very costly uh, statistics 
Statistics Canada produced a study saying that it costs between $1,500 to $3,500 per Canadian each year because of those measures. So we have, a, we have the information and we seem to have uh, the willingness uh, in the political arena. So I think we will eventually see those measures uh, be teared down. So are you viewing this as a step forward or as an opportunity lost? Is it just a Band-Aid? I think it's a step forward, but there is much more that we need to do. And like I said, some premiers are way louder in their uh, arguments. And for instance, here are um, the premier in Quebec, uh, Mr. Couillard, said that we should abolish every barrier. And Brian, Brian Pellister also said that. So uh, I think there is a real, uh, a real interest in doing so. But uh, we need to uh, wait for the results. Uh, will this depend on how NAFTA negotiations go as to which direction we'll go in? Or will the successful uh, completion of a NAFTA agreement then make the premiers look you know, into the mirror or look at each other and say, well, if we can do this between Mexico, Canada, and the United States, we should be able to do this interprovincially? Yeah, that's interesting. I think it's the, the current context of NAFTA gives us um, put a lot of pressure on their premiers, but probably that we, if we succeed in having a good NAFTA, the pressure to abolish those remaining barriers would be lower. But again, uh, don't think that it's realistic to think about a new NAFTA in the coming month, and premiers will have to to do something because they also have to win their the the election so they need to prove to their citizens that they are working for them and i think canadians are realizing how expensive it is for them um and here at the montreal economic institute we've done a lot of research and survey about this and for instance in the case of liquor um it was about 80 percent of canadians that said we should have no barriers so there is a there is a political demand for this and eventually politicians will have to do it um without regards of what's happening outside of canada so it's really important and again we have a lot of barriers and a lot of work to do so it makes it complicated um, for instance, if you look at the free trade agreement that we uh, uh, ratified between provinces uh, last year, among the 350 pages, half of them was exemptions. So <laughs> there is a lot of work to do. Why just beer and alcohol? That was sort of the, the, the headline that came out of this Premier's conference. Mm-hmm. Is, is this just solely designed to, to get our attention? Like, hey, we're, you know, we're doing something, and if it's the middle of summer and we can bring beer into the equation, it'll get everybody's attention. Why not other industries? Yeah, they want to send a signal, uh, like you say. Um, um, in this case, was really kept uh, kept at the attention of every Canadian. Uh, we followed uh, the, the the decision of the Supreme Court, and everyone was looking at it. The media were talking about it, um, and it's something easy that we can relate to. Pretty much everyone likes to have a drink uh, during the re- the weekend, and pretty much everyone thinks that we're paying too much. So, politically speaking, it's really. Uh, it's a good thing for politicians to tackle this issue, um, but there is other uh, more complicated and less talked about issues, like for instance uh, uh, the trucking industry or um, the qualification for trades. Um, but those are uh, as important, and we need to tackle all of these issues. What would be the downfall 
of releasing all of these restrictions. Um, you know, many have said you can't do it all at once. It's got to be a gradual thing. It's like an onion peeling it back layer by layer. Uh, wh- what's the argument against doing this? Would it mean loss of jobs? Would it mean lower wages, higher prices? What's the pro? What's the cons, rather, uh, for not doing this? I mean, free trade overall always leads to higher wealth and uh, more job creation. So it's just a matter of time before we see the effect of uh, trade liberalization. But on the short term, uh, there is some friction. For instance, maybe a a small company uh, in Alberta is not really uh, competitive compared to its peer uh, in Manitoba. So if we abolish those trade barriers, maybe tomorrow they will have to cut some jobs. But uh, on the long term, maybe Alberta is more competitive in other sector. So they will create more jobs in another sector. So overall, we have uh, growth in terms of jobs and wealth. So everyone will benefit from it. But on the short term, um, probably that some jobs will disappear. But uh, it's really a small pain compared to the benefits that the whole economy will, will, uh, will have. We certainly know the discussions that everyone is having now in regard to NAFTA. And for, for the most part, it seems Canadians are, are uh, obviously trying to preserve this and get the best deal that we can. Do we view NAFTA differently now than we did when it first started 25 or so years ago? Uh, When when this came on board, unions, a lot of people were screaming, this is going to be the death of everybody. Now it seems if we lose it, it will be the death of everybody. How has our attitude on this changed since its inception? Yeah, that's kind of funny. And like I said, sometimes when you are in a union, you don't necessarily talk in the, for every Canadian. You talk for your workers and you want them to have the highest income and uh, the more jobs possible. But sometimes some industry are less competitive. And if we keep them alive uh, with trade barriers, yes, maybe we'll, they will keep their job. But at the expense of every Canadian who pay more for their goods and services, so they don't really con- necessarily consider uh, the whole benefit, but only the, their own interests. So, and it's the same thing for some business. They, they, some business actually profit from trade barriers. Um, for instance, in the dairy industry, we ha- we really have high tariffs and protectionist measures between each provinces and uh, from other countries. So we are able to have higher prices here. So it's good for them, but it's at the expense of every Canadians. So those industries are fighting really hard to keep those protectionist measures in place. And actually, they were uh, against the the Camo case at the Supreme Court. So this is why we have some uh, organization or trade unions who are fighting to to preserve their, those uh, protectionist measures. But overall, we have a benefit. And the more we open the economy, um, the more wealth will grow, the more jobs will grow, uh, will be created. And those unions or those organizations will have to adapt. And eventually, like we are seeing right now, uh, some of them, more, a lot of them actually are benefiting from free trade and they want more of it because they see the opportunity. They see that here in Canada, we can compete in the world and uh, and succeed. So sometimes it's just the kind of a fear that we have um, from other countries or uh, the, this big economy in the United States, but we are able to really succeed and actually export a lot of goods and services to the United States. Alexandra Morrow has been with us, public policy analyst at the Montreal Economic Institute. As always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, my pleasure. 
Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.